Hi, I'm Nora, and this is Uncatalogued. Maybe it's crazy in a perfect world, a world without lab coats and blazers. But you're not in a perfect world. You in a museum now. <laughs> Happy hashtag Museum Week, everyone. It's a week where Twitter goes a little bit museum crazy. We have different themes every day. Secrets, people, heritage, memories. What better week to launch an episode of a podcast that's all about those things. This time, I'm letting you in on an unintentionally well-kept secret. A museum collection with over four million objects that you may have never heard of. I'm also getting an insight into a group of people who are arguably the face of our museums all over the world. As always, you'll learn some stuff along the way, including why you should never trust a man with pointy shoes, and the best anecdote you'll ever hear about a squirrel in a freezer. beautiful sunny day it's one of those first days of spring in london that just fills you with joy and i've come to the south bank center to interview my first guest we're sitting out on the terrace in the sun we're overlooking the thames there are copious amounts of school children which you'll probably be able to hear in the background and amidst all these visitors and all this hustle and bustle it seems like a really fitting place for this interview Yeah, my name is Arne Speck and my job title is, I think officially it's Vista Services host, but we call ourselves hosts mainly. Okay, uh, and where do you work? work at the Museum of London. I'm calling this section an ode to a gallery assistant. For this episode I struggled a bit with who I should interview. For Museum Week I wanted someone who sort of typified life in a museum, but as we know that's pretty impossible. You know, there are so many people who work there and who work together to make a museum what it is. But I figured for quite a lot, if not most visitors, those frontline staff, the gallery assistants, the receptionists, the hosts, the security guards, they're often all they see as the face of the museum. So what does being a host at the Museum of London actually involve? So it can mean that I can sell tickets, I am standing in the galleries, uh, pure from a safety, you know, fire alarm point of view. Um, I can also be the one that greets you when you come into the museum and try to sell you a highlight guide. It's very important. And uh, I can also be the one who, who shows you around, uh, do free tours inside the museum or pay tours outside in the streets of London or who might do uh, an arts and crafts session on a Sunday or an object handling session. Um, and I always think the main thing about my job is to make the collection of the museum really come alive and, and all the fantastic things that we have and that people might miss while they're just you know, strolling around. I will sort of slightly harass you to make sure that you don't miss it, basically. Anna's worked at the museum for nearly five years. Her ultimate aim is to be a comedian. She used to work evenings in a cinema, but this wasn't really handy when it came to getting evening gigs. I asked her if that sort of approach was typical of her colleagues. I think the Museum of London is um, a little bit different maybe than some other museums. We do have a, a mixture of people. So we do have people who 
like I started, really see it as a, as a second job that is really handy and that is um, very interesting at the same time. But we also have some people who are really into museums, who are really into doing tours. And um, so we do have some people who've been there for, for, for a lot of time, <laughs> as well as people who sort of come in and out after a year and then get another job. What is the most common question that you get asked? Where are the toilets? <laughs> Well, surprisingly, a lot of people ask, where's the entrance, when they're already inside. Um, we're like, well done, you're here, welcome. Um, and a lot of questions are, so um, what, what do you have in the museum? There's quite a lot of people who sort of wander by and go, oh, and just have a look. Um, but uh, there's also the, the very famous ones where they go, where are the dinosaurs? <laughs> you're like, uh, in the other museum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or the whole when where are the Egyptians? Um, so that's that's a, a we get yeah we get confused a lot with the British Museum, but that's usually by by tourists who um, who think that they found it but they haven't. <laughs> yeah, the, the one of the weirdest questions I ever had was a lady who asked me, "Oh, these stairs, um, do they do they go down?" <laughs> so I'll have to try. <laughs> um, so we tried out and yes, they did go down. Um, <laughs> And the, the other day, somebody asked me, uh, where's the night at the museum? And I was thinking, that's an American museum? Yeah, that was, that was on the list of, of strange questions. I really think someone should make some sort of record of the weirdest things that have ever been asked to gallery assistants and hosts. I'm sure it'd be a hilarious read. I asked Anna what the best thing about her job was. The best thing is the interaction with the with the visitors and I really like doing the tours and sort of the object handling and showing people these amazing things that we have and doing the uh, talks outside the museum are also very good um, so we can have some fantastic conversation with people and, and it's always a two-way thing so I find out about uh, I'm a quite nosy sometimes about your life as well, so I'll, I'll find everything out about visitors and why they're here. Yeah, that's the best, the best thing. What's the worst thing? The worst thing is working with the visitors. Um, <laughs> no, it's, I think sometimes people come with, they're already having a bad day and then something is not immediately clear at the museum and they, they just yeah show their emotions to you and that can be sometimes challenging um, but it's it's yeah the the good people outweigh the, the bad people by far so we have a lot of um, people who come about three or four times in their life as well as I would say like once as a school kids you know once where they have children of their own and then once with the grandkids or something like that so you get a lot of people asking about things they remember when they came and unfortunately we, we sometimes have to disappoint them because we yeah we, we redid the galleries about five years ago so yeah on that subject whilst we have a museum of london expert here i thought i'd quiz her on her favorite objects well we have some medieval shoes that are fantastic i think uh, a really pointy one especially because um, the curator told me that uh, really pointy shoes in medieval time was a bit for a gentleman when now somebody drives a really big car 
and you go, oh, he's he's compensating for something else. And I just love that, that they had that in the medieval times as well. Um, I, I'm quite into pottery, which I'm slightly ashamed of, but... Uh, <laughs> Don't be ashamed of that. Pottery is cool. So, so it can be... Do you know when a pot is really cute? Yeah. I mean, like, this is insane. I call a pot cute, but it is a very cute pot. Um, yeah. So we have some uh, like sort of little picky banks, little money pots from about Tudor times. Uh, most of them are smashed, but because the money came out again. Uh, but I really like those as well. So yeah. What's the most? Is there something that all visitors always love? Is that the rock star thing? Uh, we have the Lord Mayor's coach, which a lot of people come to see. We have uh, Oliver Cromwell's death mask. That is surprisingly f- um, popular. <laughs> Okay. I know, yeah. <laughs> uh, what else? Well, we have a, a very good Roman collection um, and our Victorian street, uh, which a lot of people remember and, and come over and over again to see it. Um, so I think that's very nice because it really immerses you into, you can sort of for five minutes pretend that you, you're walking in Victorian London, which is, is really good. As we started chatting more, we got onto a subject that I thought might crop up. Um, and also visitor services, I think, is really interesting within the museum world at the moment because you get a lot of museums who are having completely different opinions than the Museum of London about their visitor services. So some museums are just getting agency staff. And, of course, I'm, I see uh, advantages of that, but I think it's, it's um, you make your collection a lot poorer, I think, in that way. Um, and people giving the chance of people there having a full-time job and, and really building up the collection. I'm not saying that you know visitor service is the most important, but for a good amount of the visitors, they don't see anybody else. So if that person, you know, agency staff can be amazing, but they will never have the knowledge and you know commitment to the to the collection that we might have as a more full-time staff. I think Anna's put it really nicely the privatisation of parts of your workforce is a contentious subject. You know, it's been in the news a lot recently, especially in the last few years. And I don't think there's a right or wrong answer that can address the issue in different organisations. Everywhere is different, obviously. But for me, and in Museum Week, I think it's important to recognise the people like Anna the individuals who represent our museums to the vast majority of visitors on a day-to-day basis. And I also think it's important for them to feel valued, to feel as though they're an integral part of our museums and that their role is just as important as anyone else's. The challenge that the RIBA has is that its its name, the Royal Institute of British Architects, does not immediately make you think of a museum or that it's a body that has a collection. Despite that, it is an accredited museum. We are the de facto national collections for architecture. The number of objects in the collections is huge. We 
claim about four million items, of which uh, about a million are drawings, a million and a half photographs, and a million and a half archival items, and about 300,000 books from the 15th century to the present day. It is really quite a well-kept, an unintentionally well-kept secret, um, as far as the general public's concerned. For Museum Week, I wanted to lift the lid on an unintentionally well-kept secret. And I should probably confess at this point that it's not for any journalistic flair that I found out about the RIBA. I actually used to work there. And when I said that I worked there, lots of people would know about the RIBA and what it did, but they didn't know that it was a museum as well. So I thought, what better place to expose in Museum Week to reveal the collections and what better person to interview than its chief curator, Charles Hind, who's looked after the collection for, well, let's say quite some time. January this year, I have worked here um, 20 years. And why have I stayed? I'm, it's a very varied job. I, I get to work with wonderful things. Uh, I, I, never get, I never feel I'm being stuck in a rut. I enjoy talking to people about architecture, so there's always a fair amount of, sort of public presentation going on, curating exhibitions and so on and so forth, writing about architecture, but usually using the collections as part of it. I would say I, it's, it's very difficult to get bored. Well, I've been passionate about architecture as, as far back as I can remember. I was given by my grandmother when I was, I think I was about six for my birthday the um, Observer Book of Architecture. And it's obvious from the inscription that she was giving it to me because I was clearly looking at buildings already. Um, I then, uh, rather curiously, got more into architectural history because when I was at school, I decided to build a doll's house, a proper architectural doll's house, which involved looking at buildings and getting ideas. It was a sort of Georgian doll's house. And I had a wonderful book from the school library called A History of the English House by Nathaniel Lloyd, which changed the direction of my life, really. And I had it out of the school library for four years, and it had 881 photographs of English houses and their interiors and details of them. So it's a very, very accurate doll's house in the end. But in, in due course, I moved on from doll's houses. I never actually finished it. It's still sitting in my loft. And at uh, university, I joined the University Architectural Society. And <clears throat> in those days, in the 1970s, you could invite amazingly grand people to give a lecture on a Wednesday night, and they would trek all the way and you just gave them dinner and a bed for the night. And we also organised outings to look at buildings. And architects would sort of turn up. We had organised a day looking at Lasden buildings in London. And Dennis Lasden, who wasn't supposed to be involved at all, not only personally took us around the National Theatre, which hadn't opened then, but he then hopped on the bus and said, so where are we going next? I didn't want to become an architect having been put off the idea by the father of a 
boy at school who said, what's your maths like? And I said, well, it's taken me three years to get my maths O-level. And he said, right, architecture's not for you. So it remained a hobby. And in the end, it became the history of it, I suppose, became my profession. Although it took a bit of a way round before that actually happened. I'm probably... No, I certainly am extremely lucky to be doing the sort of job I am because there's really only one job like it in the country and I've got it. (laughs) So I think we'll find that Charles is a fitting and interesting and lovely guide to these four million objects. So what exactly are they? Who comes to see them and what are the highlights? I suppose our unique selling point, really, is the connection with the profession of architects. Uh, the, um, the architectural profession has been the principal source of much of our collections. Um, and we're the collective memory of the profession in Britain. Unlike other architectural collections, which tend to collect exquisite drawings by very famous architects... Uh, We're interested in everything that architects do and, to a certain extent, in everything that has interested architects, even if it isn't always very obviously related to architecture. So we do have drawings um, by the great famous architects um, of not only Britain but around the world, Um, but we also have drawings uh, and other items from architects of whom you've never heard um, who might have had a relatively small practice designing domestic work in the west of England and they might be 20th century, they might be 18th century but you can't really, I think in any collection, understand the breadth of a topic like architecture if you don't see both the peaks the mountain peaks and the valleys in between and that's what you get through looking at the RIBA's collections. We've had people who've been investigating why the basement of their 18th century house has rising damp, because we have a drainage plan from the 1740s and the drains had got blocked, so they now knew, found out how to unblock or where to unblock the drains. Um, we had somebody who was writing a detective story set in a Victorian country house and she wanted to make sure that She understood the planning of such a house and what all the many rooms needed in a servant's wing did. We get people who are looking up their own houses um, or they're researching their local church. One of my favourite objects, which has become something that I suppose my colleagues feel perhaps gets dragged out too often, but I discovered it in a safe uh, many years ago and it had been forgotten about and it was, it's a fragment of the coffin of Sir Christopher Wren and one of the ways one of the best ways of talking to people about architecture because architecture is something that surrounds you people take it for granted but it's something you can't avoid and if you show them a drawing they might think it's rather dull or they might not understand it because the Conventions of architectural drawing are different from ordinary drawings. 
um, you tell stories. And one of the stories you can tell is about the architect. And if you can show an object that belongs to the architect or has a particular connection with the architect, I have to say a fragment of Wren's coffin is um, pretty connected, um, then it somehow brings the subject alive and brings the architect alive. Um, we've also got the umbrella of the arts and crafts architect, Charles Voisey. Um, that's another sort of personal item. Now, if you think a piece of coffin and an umbrella are a little bit odd, you ain't heard nothing yet. When someone starts a sentence with, oh, you've heard my squirrel story, haven't you? You know it's going to be a good one. Oh, well, well, I'm not sure this is an amusing story. There's my squirrel story. You've heard my squirrel story, haven't you? No. That's a great story. Well, we do have discussions about what we should acquire. And, uh, as I said, one of my... Uh, an important part of my role is, is dealing with acquisitions. But um, sometimes you're out in the field and you need to make a decision and you haven't got colleagues to uh, bounce an idea off. And there was one case when I was in an industrial store. The um, contents of a house were sort of laid out in this store uh, because the granddaughter of um, an architect had died, a very old lady. And so... This old lady's sort of life and, as it were, her family's history was sort of spread out on tables and things like that. And she had already given us a lot of stuff to do with her family. Her um, father, an uncle, and her grandfather had, had all been architects. And the heiress, who was disposing of everything, her goddaughter, said, you know, once we'd decided what the idea was taking... She said, you know, it's very difficult deciding what to do with a lot of this stuff because I, you know, I don't like the idea of throwing stuff away, but you know, who wants it? You know, what do I do with this? And she pointed at this slightly pathetic little object, which it turned out um, was a, a pet squirrel that had been, when it died, it was stuffed by its owner. And its owner was... Um, Miss Moore's uncle, who, having just about you know, qualified and was about to launch on a career as an architect, was called up or joined the army in the First World War and was killed. So you know, his career never really happened. So there was this sort of rather pathetic Edwardian stuffed, slightly badly stuffed squirrel, but with a story to this poor young man who, like so many other millions, you know, was killed in the First World War. And I felt terribly sorry for it. And I said, oh, all right, we'll take it. <laughs> so I got back to the office and our concern, you know, I was saying what had happened and what we were taking and such like, and I said about the squirrel. And our conservators said, well, if you insist on it joining the collection, it's going to spend at least six months in somebody's deep freeze. And everybody sort of looked meaningfully at me. So it spent a year, in fact, in my deep freeze at home. Um, and it's now in our, um, what's known as our O and S collection, which is, um, stands for odds and sods, which is stuff that you can't categorise in any other way. Um, and one day, perhaps I'll do an exhibition on architects killed in the First World War, and that poor little squirrel will have its um, brief moment of glory. Well, I hope I've wet your whistle 
and piqued your interest in the collections of the RIBA. And if you're not quite convinced yet, I'm pretty sure these last words from Charles will do the trick. Architecture, as I said, is one of the... It's the only art form that you cannot avoid. I mean, you can be blind and you can't see a painting. You can be tone-deaf and not enjoy music. But architecture is what you live and work in. I do believe passionately that people who are informed about architecture play a key role in getting better architecture built. I'm very used to people when they find out, often cab drivers, they ask what you do and you explain to them and then they'll launch into a diatribe about architecture and how they hate all the tower blocks that are going up all over London or they're hating the loss of social housing or whatever. They're voices that don't get heard. There is actually a sort of consensus, surprising consensus, about what makes good architecture. And it isn't to do with style. You've got that sterile battle between the classicists and the modernists, which is a pointless and meaningless um, battle. It's not about style at all. To me, it's about things like proportion, uh, scale, uh, materials, light... The right combinations of those, and there are many different potential combinations, but the right combinations produces architecture that people enjoy looking at, that people enjoy working and living in, and that serve a useful purpose for a long time. And if people, through access to the collections, through um, looking at images online or coming in and looking at stuff or getting involved in an educational programme, or whatever, um, can appreciate what divides good architecture from bad. And there is a lot of bad architecture about. And architecture I'm using in the sense not of necessarily being designed by architects, but architecture as is simply buildings. If they can understand why they like some things and they don't like others, um, then... 180 odd years worth of collecting by the RIBA is worthwhile. That's the end of the episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to our guests, to Charles and to Anna. Thank you to Jack Westmore again for the music. We'll be back in a few weeks' time with a new episode. In the meantime, of course, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram and, you know, have a happy museum week. <laughs>